0: Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to approach your word. We believe that your word is living and active, that it is sharper than any two edged sword. Father, would you use it today? We believe that you have given your spirit to work in us to make us like your son. Father, would you cause us to love you more? Would you make our love for you deeper? And stronger this year as we come into it by the work of your spirit for your glory and for our own good. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, here we are in the new year. Crossed over into 2022. We made it. It's an exciting time. Are you excited? As Mike mentioned, year of New Year's resolutions. Time when we resolve to do things better, to do things differently differently. Uh top resolutions, I'm sure you can guess them among them to exercise more to lose weight, to get organized this year, I want to learn a new skill, a new hobby. I sure wanna save a little more money. I knew a guy who who was who was really ready to commit one year. This was the year that he was gonna lose weight. Things were gonna be different. And so he got serious about it and he did what anyone does when they get serious. He made a spreadsheet <laughs> and he created this spreadsheet that would log all of his exercise routines and his weight loss and all these types of things. And he went uh, to save it and he realized that the name that he saved it was already occupied and he opened the document uh, that was saved under the same name and it was uh, the same spreadsheet from last year. Well, that did give him a lot of confidence in his new resolution. What is it that you have resolved this year? Do you do that? Is it to exercise more? Maybe to lose weight? Maybe this is the year that you'll put an end to all your procrastinating once and for all. Maybe it will be that. Maybe your goal is to finish an entire Chipotle burrito. I don't know what you have in store. There's all kinds of resolutions we can make. They go on and on and on. But I wonder, if you were to make a resolution if you were to resolve something between you and God that you think would enhance your relationship with him, where would you start? Would it be to add something to your life? Maybe the commitment would be to attend church more often. Maybe to read through the Bible in a year this year. Maybe it would be to pray every day. Uh, Maybe it would be a resolution of subtraction. Maybe it would be to stop cussing. Or not to gossip. But what would your resolution be that you believe would enhance your relationship with God? Well, the reality is that the central resolve of the Christian is not to do something more. That's what we mistakenly believe often. Rather, we're simply called to one central thing. To love God. That's what Paul pulls the Galatians back to in Galatians chapter 5. The church in Galatia is one that has turned from their love of God into works that they think will cause them to be able to please God. But Paul calls them back to love because the love of God is, is not about what they're doing, but it's about what God has already done. And that should be no surprise to us or to them. After all, the Shema, that that central prayer of the Hebrew people, the people of Israel, the one that they're to meditate on, the one that they're to take to their children, that they're to hang on the frontlets of their eyes and on their doorposts, is to love the Lord with all that they are. To love God. And when Jesus is asked by the works-first oriented religious leaders of the first century Jesus pushes them to the same place. They say, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The first order of business for the people of God is to love God with all that they are. That's what God expects. And so the big idea from our text today is central to that. It's simply this, that loving God is the chief work of God's people. Loving God is the chief work of God's people. And Paul captures that idea here in Galatians chapter 5. If you have a Bible with you, open to Galatians chapter 5. Today we'll be beginning in verse 2 and we'll run through verse 12. It's Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. <clears throat> For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. But Paul shows them how life in the spirit works in this text. And it echoes all that the law intends and what Jesus tells those religious leaders are the most significant commands of God. And that is that they first must love God. But what does it mean to love God? Uh, The concept of love is common to our culture, but we use it so weirdly. Uh, Not so strangely, I love my wife, Hannah. I love my kids, but I also love Cheerios. And I, I guess I love Frosted Flakes a little bit more. That's somewhat disorienting, isn't it? What does love really mean in a culture that has such a a loose and a shallow grasp on that word? Well, biblical love could be defined as an affection for something from a devotion to it. A confident hope that seals one to another, leading them to a lasting connection. That certainly fits the way that we're all called to love God. But that's not the way that we usually think about our love for God. Uh, we often want to define it by something that I'm doing. By those resolutions that we make. Love is sacrificial after all. It must be bound up in my doing. So I say, look at, I, I do this, so I must love God. But that's not the answer that Paul gives. Paul shows us that love for God is defined by at least Three things in our text. If you have an outline on the back of your bulletin, turn to it now and follow along as we work through the text. Love is defined by at least three things in our text. Number one, loving God is faith. Loving God is faith. Boy, faith is another misunderstood object in our culture. Uh, It can be thought to mean a passively uh, considered Thing that is true. Maybe I see the baby crawling on the couch and I think, well, that seems abnormal. It can be uh, an acknowledgement of of reality, that I know that what goes up must come down, so maybe I ought to head over to the couch just in case. Or it can be to understand something deeply. Sometimes we think that's faith. It's, It's a grasp of the empirical facts of the law of gravity. Maybe even with a list of supporting proofs of why the baby is going to fall off the couch. And maturity and faith then is thought to be the understanding of the depths of the complexity of the thing that we have faith in. It's a movement through that progression. Maybe it looks like increased knowledge about what it means to love God. Maybe it's thought to be a more complex spiritual gifting that is maybe manifested in the work of tongues or something like that. But even the demons know theology, James tells us, and they they shudder, yet they're not appointed for salvation. That means that faith is not an intellectual exercise by itself or the things that we're doing, no matter how intellectual or works-oriented our culture tends to become and how far away we move from the spiritual. Faith really is a move toward the action of belief, which is really active rest. That's what faith comes down to. It's a devoted love. Look at what Paul tells the Galatians as they move on and away from the active rest of faith. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. See, by accepting works for righteousness... As the Galatians were doing, you're rejecting something else inherently. The Galatians are choosing to put on something else to supplement their faith. But in doing so, they're actually rejecting faith, says Paul. And by rejecting the active rest of faith, you're accepting works. Adherence to the law uh, for salvation, as the Galatians are doing it here, which is, by the way, what Paul means when he speaks of circumcision. They're adding law to their salvation. Something else that they can do to please God. Adherence to that does two things, says Paul. He says it makes Christ of no value to you and it makes you subject to the totality of the law. In short, once I begin on a pathway down the law, I can't stop. I have to fulfill all of it. I become the Christ of my world. I take on the indignity of all sin. I bear the weight that is weighing down on all of creation in sin. Can you bear that weight, Christian? Think about it. If the work of faith is, as Jesus said, and as Paul is restating here, to believe in the one who God has sent, then by denying that faith, you are putting yourself in the position of the one God sent. And the one that God sent is the one who was promised by God, to do the work of the law. He's the one who's supposed to accomplish all that the law expects, to fulfill all of its mandates, all of its statutes, so that that work could be transferred to you, so that you would inherit that work as a person of God, as a child of God. And if you reject that transfer in favor of doing the work yourself, you become the promised one of God in the world. Are you up to that task? Paul says, in that case, you are obligated to keep the whole law. Can you perfectly obey all that God has commanded? By implication, you can't. God had to become flesh in Jesus to fulfill the promise. And you're not God. You need to rely by faith on another But we we do this without even realizing it. Well, just think about, I assume, how easy it was for you to make a resolution when I mentioned it in the intro, to come up with some contract with God by which you resolve to do better in some way. A resolution is evidence of an unbelief of the gospel at some level. Maybe you didn't do it just then, but have you, have you ever sinned in some obvious and external way, and your gut reaction is to quickly say, well, I won't, I won't do that again, I'll stop doing that. That's subtle resolution, and it's not faith, but it's the resolve of your flesh to do something, to earn God's acceptance. And when you try to accomplish that work, when you make a resolution to just do better, to grit your teeth and change something, You're making a contract, an agreement that if I do this, I'll get that. And by definition, that's works. If you're paid to do a job, that's something that we know as work. You go to work. And when you go to work and when you do the work, there's an expectation at the end that you'll get a paycheck for that, isn't there? You put in these hours, you perform this task or this work, and you get paid for that. And that work relationship is not a love relationship, at least not as far as pay is concerned. Now, they may be codependent relationships. You may love your work, but that's beside the point. The relationship that you have with your paycheck is that you work to earn it. You have a contract to do so. And that's not a loving relationship any more than working to do something for God is a loving relationship. Works before God will never equal love. If our love for God does not lead us to rest, then it will always be a contractual relationship. And it will make you in the employ of God. You'll have to reconcile the bottom line with your work in order to earn his satisfaction. Take it from Martin Luther, the great reformer. Luther hated God when he believed that he had to resolve to work to earn God's favor. He spent hours in a confessional attempting to, to dig to the depths of his soul so that he could unpack everything that he'd ever done so that God would be pleased with him. He laid outside in the cold trying to punish his body so that he could make himself more righteous, and in doing so, he hated God, You cannot be captive to the law in that way and and love the righteousness of God at the same time as a fallen being. The righteousness of God will always be heinous to the law keeper because his will will always run contrary to God's as it's displayed in his righteous law. Therefore, at your core then, every law keeper who tries to earn righteousness must hate God. Because he constantly, God that is, constantly undermines and flies in the face of your efforts. God says to be holy as I'm holy. That's salt in the wound of a lawkeeper, of a resolver. And that leads to an animosity and a hatred in your relationship with God because you could never do quite enough to satisfy God. But loving God, Requires faith. It's faith that the work has been done. And love for God is born of the work having been done. You go to collect the paycheck, not based on your work, but based upon the work of another. One that's benevolently given you something out of a love for you. You accept the check as a loving receptor, as a, a destitute person who cannot provide for themselves, but you're given much nevertheless. So faith, rest, belief, satisfaction, whatever you want to say, they're all words that mean the same thing. Pick one. Uh, different facets of trusting God. They display a love for God because they're a picture of a person who is as a child, A person who rests in the arms of God, just as a child who believes in their parents, who rests in their arms and believes in their care and is satisfied in their provision. You know, when I was a child, I I trusted my parents with everything that I was. I didn't wake up in the morning and wonder, how was I going to eat that day? And after school, I wasn't worried that I'd have to, that I'd have no home to go back to. And when I was hurt, I ran to my mother's arms to be held. To be comforted, to be supported. I put all my weight on her and I just cried, trusting that I could be exposed and cared for in the tenderness of that moment. That's how being a child should be. And you are a child of God. One who doesn't have to wonder if you'll be cared for. You don't have to worry about your next meal. And you can be vulnerable and broken because you can know and trust that your heavenly Father is a loving Father who will take you up in His arms for a good cry. That's why anxiety, works, unrest are all marks of the world. All of the needs are met when we love God and we accept Him by faith. Those things, they attempt to derail our faith. They attempt to put the work back onto us. They're temptations of our enemy to distrust God, to not love him, but to have faith in ourselves and try to accomplish the work that was required. Church, have faith in God and his gospel. It's the picture of of God's interaction with his people. They're called to rest in Him, to stop scrambling and doing for satisfaction, and to believe in His work, and to be satisfied in Him. That word rest, by the way, is not an absence of doing. It's not complacency. It's an active trust in God and His provision in the gospel. That you, though a sinner, have been rejected by God because you failed to obey the, the law, Jesus came and obeyed that law perfectly and gave you his own sonship. That's an active reception on your part. By resting, you're actively, daily, and intentionally putting your faith in God. You're loving God. Paul says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I love the pairing of the action words here. Instead of working, instead of trusting in circumcision, which is what Galatians is doing, it's code for the law, by faith, Paul is calling them to wait. By surrounding myself then with the truth of the gospel, All that God has done in Jesus to rescue me by continually putting on gospel truth when I'm tempted to turn back to works, to anxiety, to fear, to that conditional acceptance, which in the flesh you you will be tempted to do, by the way. You live in a physical world that's saturated with those things. You must not turn the gospel into a work into doing something to survive. But you must be in the practice of doing the act of eager waiting. That is, putting on the gospel. Continuing to sit under the gospel. And that happens through the people of God in your life. They're all around you this morning. Invest in them. That's what the church is for. Spend time with the people of God. They will assist you in applying the gospel to yourself. It happens through the study of His Word. It happens through prayer. Because you love Him for His gospel and the rest that He's brought to you from this world. See, loving God is faith. It trusts in God's work. And that his world is bigger and more real than what your eyes can see. But loving God is not just faith. Paul also tells us that loving God is, number two, obedience. Loving God is obedience. Now, it's, it's really easy for our, our works-focused minds to hear what I didn't just say. Namely, that loving God means that I will do something obedient. But that's not what I said. Loving God means obedience. Loving God is obedience. Loving God is equal to obedience. That means that it is the same as obedience. The act itself of obedience is to love God. Look at how Paul continues. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? See, Paul says that loving obedience to God is not about some external law, something that you do, like circumcision in this case. Loving God is the obedience. The only thing that counts is faith working through love, he says. And they're certainly working in Galatia. Their system is producing some kind of work. And it's even a work that religious people can point to and they can say, hey, that's pretty good that you're doing that. It's not as if they're pulling out a Ouija board and they're gambling on the side. They're doing the things that are prescribed in God's law in the Old Testament. But Paul looks at the same work And he says, who hindered you from obeying? That's shocking. It had to be shocking for them. Well, he's got some nerve. We're the ones who are obeying, they may have thought. But Paul suggests that obedience is not the same thing as doing empty and vacuous religious things. It's not the same as doing those religious things that way, uh, then it's something else. And, and namely, it's faith working through love. That's the rule of obedience in the life of the believer. Uh, to be sure, there's nothing wrong with the things that they're doing, not in and of themselves. Circumcision is not sinful, nor is the law of God when it's put into place. But, but Paul cuts to the heart here. He's saying that the that it's not the law itself that's bad, it's a dramatic turn from the gospel. And the reason for the turn is is because obedience to God was never just about obeying the letter of the law. Look at what Jesus says when he's confronted with this in John chapter 6. He tells the crowd, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Do not do the work for food that perishes. And they come right back with works, the crowd does. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Surely there's something that I do to obey. And Jesus, likely quoting Inigo Montoya, says that you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The first and primary, the only obedience of the people of God is tied up in this, that you would believe in the one that he has sent. You cannot obey, as they were trying to do, by turning to some other work. That's why the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything else flows out of that, says Paul. It's faith working through that love. But love is the obedience. Paul locks us in on both sides. Do you see that? On the one hand, he says that that we need to rest in Christ alone as our love for God. Not unto works, but we need to rest in Christ alone alone. And we take that as law-focused people, as rule-saturated and centered people, and we assume that that must mean that the law is evil and useless. But Paul won't allow it. He says that obedience is loving God, and then work comes out of that. It's a call not to get the cart before the horse. It's overcoming anxiety by loving God, not by force. It's Bible study because you love God, not because you think that Bible study will make you acceptable to him. Do you see that? It's not that works don't matter. It's simply that work must flow through the current of love for God. See, so many of our works go against the current. We're swimming upstream. We're trying to do something that's foreign to us. We're gritting our teeth and we're pushing just a little bit harder. And Paul says that if you're gritting your teeth and you're, you're doing works, then you're doing them wrong. Works are natural for the man who is loving God. There's obviously many foods that I love, but one that I hate is lasagna. When I was a child, my mom owned an Italian restaurant. Her specialty was lasagna, and I ate lasagna about three times a week minimum. Uh, you'd open the cupboards and lasagna would fall out. It would be under my pillow. It was it was everywhere. You couldn't get away from lasagna. And God gave me a wonderful wife and Hannah. And there's so many things about Hannah that are incredible. You've met her, you know. But one thing about Hannah, one of her favorite food is lasagna. (laughs) The food that I just happen to hate. And it's true what they say. Distance makes the heart grow fonder because her, lasagna, her love for lasagna has not gone away. And every year on her birthday, I make her a lasagna. And this year, I made her two for double points. But I don't work in the kitchen, begrudgingly making her that lasagna, muttering under my breath the whole time about how much I hate lasagna. I make it with joy because I love Hannah. I don't make it because I think it will earn me Hannah's love. I make it because she enjoys it and I love to please her. See, if your works are out of a begrudged effort, they're not born out of love. They're out of duty. If you're white-knuckling your Bible study and your prayer, the answer is not to get a longer whip, to beat yourself into shape. The answer is that you have a love problem. You do not do them because you do not love God properly. Love is obedience. Love is not a discipline to study your Bible. It just so happens that the disciplines flow out of that love. But no matter how hard you try, you cannot make yourself love God more through the spiritual disciplines alone. The problem is that it's unnatural for man to love God. And that's why verse 5 tells us that through the Spirit... We have a faith that is intention, eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness. It's, it's eager or striving and longing for the redemption that is said to be ours. It's empowered by the Spirit to give you faith against all that your eyes see, against a fallen nature that doesn't see that immediate fruit in prayer and in Bible study. Not an eagerness that goes out and, and does something. So that I can earn God's affection, but an eagerness for the gospel truth in our lives, a a continual eagerness to sit in the current of the gospel message, because that is the chosen current, that mechanism that God has appointed to feed your soul, to spiritually empower you. See, then and only then, after you're in the current of gospel truth, will you do works. The gospel is not the message of, of go and do works because it's the message that God has redeemed you so that you might love him. And then in loving him, your life will produce those works. Intuitively, parent, you know this to be true. Obedience in children is not having them obey the letter of your law. They don't love you in that way. Obedience in children is having their hearts fixed upon your voice, knowing that by listening to you, that will be the best outcome for their life. See, parenting goes awry when we parent out of the law that way. When we parent out of law, we expect works based on obedience, rather than love-based obedience. Well, maybe you're pretty good at observing the letter of the law. Maybe you have a good willpower to stop doing the things that you believe are contrary to God's will. But the real test of obedience comes in your love for God as the central figure of everything. It's reasonably easy to obey out of duty. All you need is a a reminder and an alarm clock. It's consistent with human nature to be able to manipulate things to get what I need to have my needs met. But to love God as the center, that's contrary to the flesh. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You know that you're a lawkeeper for obedience sake and not a lover of God for obedience when you're fearful of the cost. Fearful of what God might ask me to give up. That means that I'm not obedient out of a love for God. That's why Jesus commands the rich young ruler to go and sell all that he has. He's a self-proclaimed righteous man, as far as the standard of the law goes, but he doesn't love God. He's missed the first step. See, obedience at its heart is a love of God. And when you love God, suddenly it's not so hard to sell everything that you own and follow him. Because where else can you go? He has the words of life. And if you see no works in your life, the answer is not to feel naked by that reality and to to cover up with the fig leaves of duty to do something. I just got to get a reading plan. I just got to set that alarm and pray more to grit your teeth to do a little bit more. I know when I'm naked because I don't see fruit in my life, I go back to the gospel. I put on the hope of righteousness and I let the Spirit build my eagerness for the good news of God's Gospel. I let it do the work as I apply the mechanism that is the Gospel. I remind myself of all that is true and what Jesus has done for my soul. I strive to love God and not work for God. Don't put the heart cart before the horse. Do not try to obey God with works. The disciplines... Of the faith as Bible study, prayer, giving, you name it. Those aren't obedience. The disciplines of the faith are mechanisms that feed obedience because obedience is loving God. Loving God is faith, loving God is obedience, and finally, loving God is endurance. Loving God is endurance so much of our duty-bound religious efforts, so much of our resolution comes from trying to stay the course. You say, this year I want to be a, a better Christian than I was last year. And I have to maintain well, so I'll create parameters in my life to stay faithful. If I just add this thing, maybe I can endure. But Paul calls a church that has not endured to the simple call to love God. And he calls them this way. He says, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying this truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. The church fell. They were hindered from obedience by a persuasion that did not come from God. They were persuaded to turn from the gospel, that love of God, and to turn back to some object of the flesh, something that they could do to honor or please God in their minds. But what has really gone wrong is that they turned from their love of God. They wanted something more than God at his word. They wanted circumcision, something external, something by which they could validate their relationship with him. But Paul says that they must come back to that first love. They must come back to loving God for God. We think that we just need to do something to stay committed to God. But Paul says you don't move from the gospel. You continue in obedience, and that means continuing in the gospel as the continual source of love for God in your life. Continue to understand the promises of the gospel and how they come to bear and pierce the darkness in your life. Works don't replace that. Endurance is tied up in the spirit, applying the truth of the gospel into the recesses of your soul stay true to the faithful word that you've been given don't move from grace those are the commands of paul we hear a word like endurance in our faith and we we gravitate to something that will make us stay committed some kind of resolution we hear endurance and we think i got to grow up i got to do something more so we make a resolution but loving God begins with you as a child in His arms. He does the work. You rest in it. And you, you don't grow up and out of your childlike dependence on Him and His gospel that saves you. You keep climbing back up into His lap and clinging to Him. You love God and you stay fixed upon what He said. You hold on to the promises of God. A note to you men... If you don't know what that means, we're beginning a study on the promises of God here coming in the next couple of weeks. I encourage you Wednesday mornings to be a part of that. It's a great way to apply this to your life. Come talk to me if you're interested. This is a call to cling to the promises and then to put to death anything that compromises that. Paul's language is strong. Stay vigilant for the gospel, Paul says. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do you know what leaven is? It's an agent that causes dough to rise. It doesn't take much, but it spreads through the whole dough. It ferments and gives volume to it. And a little bit will spread through the whole ball of dough to the point that you can't separate the leaven from the dough. Is there the leaven of anything except a love for God in your heart? Is there the leaven of self-gratification? Maybe despair has creeped in. Maybe it's works. These things are subtle. Look out that you don't fall. They will spread. Be vigilant to take those things to task in your heart. They are competing for your love of God. It's not a work to remove those things. It's not a duty, but it's a freedom to love God from all that pollutes. Remind yourself of what is true and trust the Spirit to use it. Apply the gospel work of rest in your heart and trust God. Martin Luther, when tempted by Satan with the leaven of other things in his heart, said it this way, speaking to Satan, You trouble me with the remembrance of my past sins. You remind me that I have done no good. But this does not bother me. Because if I were to trust in my own good deeds or despair because I have done no good deeds, Christ would not profit me either way. In this new year, there is a place for resolutions. And there are resolutions that honor God. By all means, read through the Bible this year. By all means, pray every day and deal with sin. But won't you first come back to a love for God? A love that's only found in the applied truth of the gospel. Only then will you find lasting resolution. Father, thank you for your gospel. The beauty that it frees us to love you and enjoy you forever. Father, would you fix us on your gospel in this new year and cause us to love you by faith. To love you as our work of obedience. And to love you so that we might endure throughout this year. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.